Psalm 126 then. Let's read it first. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with songs of joy. And and they were sung by pilgrims returning from the surrounding nations to Israel, Jews who came on pilgrimage to Zion, that is the city of God, and the temple in its midst for worship, for three annual festivals, Passover, the festival of harvest called Pentecost, and later in the year, Tabernacles, to remember their journey through the wilderness, and therefore God's faithfulness to them in those dire circumstances. And there's a progression. These were memorized. They must have had melodies that accompanied them. And it was a way of preparing your heart for a fresh encounter with God in the epicenter of his presence among his people in Jerusalem. So what does this psalm, which is nearing the end of this sequence from 120 to 134, what does this psalm have for us? I think something really wonderful. I've often prayed through this psalm at various periods during my own personal ministry among the churches I've pastored. Now, let me just open it in this way. Imagine that you were watching a scene on a tiny 14-inch TV screen, and a little girl is being slapped quite hard on both sides of her face, repeatedly by her father, and it looks like until her teeth are rattling. She's crying. Is this child abuse that I'm watching right now? Now pan back as the camera does. And as the, pan, as the camera moves back, a vista opens. It's a wintry scene in Aviemore, up in Scotland, in the winter. It's snowing, and it's very, very cold. And the girl and her dad have walked probably five miles to get to safety and try to make a descent down the mountain so they won't be trapped in the snowdrifts. And he's hitting her to keep her awake so she will not die of exposure before they can finally get back to safety. It's not the fact that you're crying that matters. It's what you're crying for. Now, God will often chasten his people for the very same reason. It's to save our lives and bring us to a better place. Now, this then is one of those songs of ascent sung by Hebrew pilgrims who are actually attending an annual Bible week, like we used to go to the Dales and and Stonely and uh, the Downs many years ago. It's a great thing to go on pilgrimage where you're going to have an intense encounter with God and be exposed to, you know, unheard of parts of his word that are going to signal prophetically what God has for us in the next chapter of our lives or our corporate identity as the people of God. I've been to many, many Bible weeks since I was a very young Christian, age 16. And so I know the blessing of gathering with others and being under God's Word, and worshipping Him corporately together on a large scale. So this was one of my all-time favorite songs, because I've loved these psalms, and I've preached through them some years back, each one of them consecutively. You see, 
I would believe that this particular song was one of the top of the parade of the favorite choruses to be singing. And it's one that's going to help us um, keep fresh because these songs are never stale to us. They're never outdated. It's a song related to ascent. And God does not want us just to stay at the level we're at or the position we're presently in. There's always the opportunity of moving on. We're meant to be a people on the move. We're always aiming to go higher up and further in with God. And this is what this psalm is designed to do in our hearts. It's both retrospective and prospective, as you can see. Is it being projected? Great. That's great. We're going to keep that in front of you so you stick with the program. Both retrospective and prospective. What it's doing is it's looking backwards to a history that they have passed through. A mixed history in some ways. And it looks forwards to God's kingdom coming more dynamically and manifestly among them. They all have happy memories of a former past, but they also are pleading for God's pledges, pledges again for a greater future that's better than anything we've experienced before. And I believe it's good to look back with gratitude to what God has done and the way he has led us, no matter what our present circumstances are. And I also think it's even better to look forward with expectation, not just gratitude, but expectation, because we've all seen much to make us glad in the past. It means we have promises still unclaimed for the future. And we ought to be hope-filled. Hope is a form of optimism, spiritual optimism that God puts in us. And it orientates us for tomorrow and many tomorrows beyond that. We can't remain stuck in a rut. A rut is a grave with both ends knocked out. So God wants resurrection periods to happen in our spiritual walk with him where we come all alive again and become filled with joy, right now in the present, that's going to sustain us for the future that we're going to be headed towards. So J.I. Bryce, a Christian writer, said this. He once complained that the church has become stuck somewhere between Passover and Pentecost. But God wants to transform our Passover into Pentecost again and again. Passover, of course was the reenactment of the killing of animals as a type of atonement that anticipated the death of Jesus in that awesome AD 30 30 crucifixion. So it's the saving work of God that leads us into Pentecost, the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our lives that happened to the early church. So one way to pursue this is to rediscover something of the necessity of weeping from time to time. Weeping isn't all bad. Often it's the most profound and powerful expression of our longings and our needs, of our desires, of our wants, that are all sanctified and honoring to God. So I've called this message, Try Tears. Try Tears. I don't know if you ever cry as a Christian or that you're ever moved to see them trickle down your ears and eyes and cheeks 
because you're so moved by the things that God has been promising to you and that you've been longing for and now beginning to experience. A lot of men don't like to cry. Let's remember, Jesus wept many times. He wept at Lazarus' tomb. He wept in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not unmanly to weep. It's part of the way God has has wired us. Our emotions are meant to be engaged as our mind is filled with truths that are awesome and touching to our hearts. Now, this then I want to unpack in two things with you. Joy relived in verses 1 to 3, and joy reclaimed in verses 4 to 6. Now, the background of this, of course, is a celebration of the reserve of the prisoners of war that the Babylonians took east into Babylon and made them servants and slaves to them for decades. And suddenly God arranged that they would leave that imprisonment and come back home. So no wonder a psalm was written to celebrate this and to remember that past, to relive the experience they had of captivity and then return and freedom again. Now, the place they went, of course, was the Babylonian captivity. Nebuchadnezzar was the emperor at the time. It's located more or less entirely where the borders of Iraq are today. And if you can think of the Adolf Hitler of the ancient world, you'll have the name Nebuchadnezzar in your mind. The cruel, tyrannical, absolutely heartless and vicious conqueror of lands and displacer of people, a genocidal maniac. And it's similar, therefore, to the Iraq of the 20th century when Saddam Hussein, who had a cruel regime, if there ever was one, if you'd lived under that regime, you'd want to be getting out of there as fast as you could. And that's why Israel is celebrating the fact that God got them out of there and brought them back home, thank God. So Christian people... I believe, need to wake up sometimes to the truth and reality about much of the state of the church in Britain today, and even our churches. We often resemble yogurt that has passed its sell-by date. Uh, What is happening is there can be a subtle and relentless deterioration in our passion, in our spirituality, in our personal disciplines, in our, our grasp of the Bible, our honoring and reception of the Holy Spirit, it all begins to go on a slide, a dangerous decline, a backsliding. And we turn slightly sour whilst giving off lots of gas. God wants us to be fresh and up to date in the Holy Spirit and all alive for Him. So this is a great psalm for people who want to recover a better past than they're presently experiencing. So let's look at this thing, joy relived. It says in verses 1 to 3 and that when the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with songs of joy. And then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Well, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Now, this is a memory, remember, but it's a memory that's still being sustained in their lives that they can celebrate again. So it's good to look back when you're feeling slightly stale 
And worse still, if you're giving off gas. The dominant thought here is that we were once captives. Verse 1. Not referring to our pre-Christian life either, but rather those times of feelings of exile and joyless loss of the presence of God and freedom that we ought to walk in as believers in Jesus Christ. This is what, in the 16th century, the great German reformer Martin Luther called the experience of the Babylonian captivity of the Church of Christ. What he was looking back upon was several centuries of medieval Roman Catholicism in Europe. And the only way he could sum it up in a short treatise he wrote after his rediscovery of the gospel of justification by faith in 1517 and nailed those theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral that caused a whole stir. Uh, He put it crudely because of the aftermath of this is that he got famous in Rome and they were out for his blood and killing him. And he put it like this, every time I fart in Wartburg, the the Pope smells it in Rome. And what he's saying is he stunk in the Pope's nostrils because he was going to shake and he's going to reform the church and bring it back to Christ and to the gospel. Well, we all need to be freed of that captivity to that heresy of works righteousness and earning your way into heaven. You will never in a million years earn your way into heaven. It's all been paid for, therefore, at the cross. All you can do is live a life of faith and gratitude for all the Savior has done for you. Now, those Catholics all over Europe and in our own nation had been robbed of many, many aspects of the Bible and the gospel. Because, for one thing, it wasn't even translated into the vernacular language of the people. It was read in Latin, and not a single worshipper of ordinary class could understand what the Bible was saying when it was read, and it was never preached. So no wonder there's a Babylonian captivity that we can escape from, and freedom. Well, these Jews had their own real Babylonian captivity in a foreign land. And you may have had yours many times in your walk with God, where things have just, all the lights have gone out, all the joy has gone, an impression has come upon you where you feel like you're on a gloomy day every day. And that means you feel there's been decline in your church and your own life and depression, maybe disappointment and delay, doldrums and disillusionment. Anybody never been through those experiences? Right, well, listen up. Because think back and remember some of these times as a Christian. You were disillusioned and you kept asking, there has to be surely more than this. You'd signed up for life in all its fullness, as Jesus describes it. But like one woman once asked me when I visited her in my first church, in the early days I was there, And it wasn't a great church, I can tell you that. I went out to see her because I'd not seen her for weeks. And I asked her, what's wrong? Why are we not seeing you? Your husband's still coming, but you've stopped. And she said to me, in a very poignant way eventually, with tears rolling down her cheeks, she said to me, you keep on talking about the joy in all its fullness that we're meant to experience as believers in Jesus Christ. Well, I ask you, Greg... Where is it? 
That was a very powerful question to me. Where is it? And I couldn't honestly say, she's wrong. Because the state of the church, as I was describing to the conference yesterday, was dire. But then it was typical of the time. Maybe churches from the 1940s right through to the early 1980s, all over our land, so-called evangelical churches, which evangel means a good announcement, glad tidings. So it should bring joy. But you should see the faces of some of these people in the church I pastored. There was joy minus nothing. And it seems, therefore, that question was pertinent. It provoked me profoundly. I wanted this woman to come into everything Christ had for her. And what happens to us is we seem more backslidden than making progress. Other times we're always trying harder to be a good Christian. But when do you get there? You rarely, if ever, tell another soul that you've been saved and they can be saved too. When was the last time you had a decent, heartfelt, meaningful conversation with a colleague at work who's asked you about your faith? May have been a long time ago. In fact, you may not even be able to remember a single occasion. You'd have to really think hard. When did it happen? Sometimes you've prayed phony prayers to impress people in the rare prayer meetings you, uh, you visit. Now, I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm just going to try and tell you that sometimes we get into total doldrums where everything has stopped, nothing much is moving, nothing much is scintillating us at all. Your quiet times are just that, quiet, almost silent. And a church, you hardly know a soul and don't care for anyone. No one seems to care about you either. This is the kind of thing can happen to churches. And the Bible appears about as dull as reading a British telecom telephone directory. Do you ever read the telephone directory? No, I don't, because it's boring. As boring as a dial tone and as bland as beige. So we want a Bible that's not remotely like that. We want a Bible that leaps off the page every time we read it and explodes in our souls with its power. The Bible appears dull, however, to many Christians, and church life isn't much better either. Think of all those tedious sermons having to pinch yourself to stay awake. My wife told me after I started courting with her and then got married to her, she said, she regularly used to pinch herself in the tummy while the sermon was going on. And they were only 20 minutes long in a Baptist church. 20-minute long sermons, and she's pinching herself to stay awake. Now, that can't be very good preaching, can it? And some people have to suffer with that all their lives. On that, oh, that dreary organ, <laughs> played by an old arthritic, I'll call her Mrs. Talbot, that was the organist in our church when I first went there. Actually, she was so bad that when cars came onto the adjacent car park, which was covered with gravel, you could hear them do a circle U-turn out because they could see through the frosted glass window, oh, it's hair again on the organ. And they'd turn out and leave immediately. You see, we pastors go through a lot of trials 
This is why I'm eager for joy relived all the time. Joy relived. She sounded more like Des, Les Dawson. Have you heard Les Dawson played the piano? That's what she was like on the organ. It was appalling. Well, we, we worked our way through ten verses of that old favorite, I'm such a miserable sinner. And then there were those terrible members' meetings. Do you remember them? You may be current here, I don't know. With their outbursts of ugly staring contests at the pastor and the deacons. And the deadly cold formalism of church fellowship suppers, my eye, with a few dried-up sausage rolls and a withered salad and cheap orange squash and tasteless coffee served up in Cracked old pre-war pottery. Do you remember that? We used to have them in our churches. Green crockery. They were pre-war. They must at least go back to 1940. When I went to the Westminster Chapel, the cupboards were filled with, filled with this green crockery. You only got mouth, two mouthfuls out of the cup. They were that small and parsimonious. You know, coffee's expensive. And so the first thing we did on, in, when we got to the chapel was empty those... Chain, cha, green china uh, crockery and give them away to some Baptist church here on the other side of the country. They wanted them, by the way. <laughs> because a lot of this had been broken. I'm not surprised. Somebody must have done it deliberately but didn't succeed. So it was all so legalistic, morbid, dull, and predictable. And of course, in some of our churches, genes were not permissible especially on women, they should never be seen wearing trousers. They're dressing up like men now. Laughter was verboten. That's German for forbidden. And whispered voices, when you came into the church, you would tip, tippy-toe down the aisle, looking around for a, free, a church, and not look anybody in the eyes. You're looking for a chair where you can comfortably, silently sit down. What was it all about? It's absolute nonsense. Church is a family. And they're friends. And they love each other. And they're free in the Holy Spirit. It's no wonder then this psalm celebrates this fact that joy can be relived if we want it. All filing in and out in virtual silence is not the order of the day. Where was the expectancy? Where's the joy in coming to be together on Sundays? Where is the life that we're going to encounter there? And especially the glory. One American writer, Ellen Glasgow, wrote about her Presbyterian father who was an elder in his church, and he was entirely unselfish. She said, <coughs> excuse me, he was entirely unselfish, and in his long life, he never committed a pleasure. I've known people in Scotland like that. They've never committed a pleasure. Martin Luther had a fine assistant called Philip Melanchthon. And Luther was a passionate, loud, vociferous, coarse, very funny comedian, massive theologian, and a wild and reckless man who would do daring things to defy the, defy the authorities without no mention of saving his life. And he turned Europe around. But Philip Melanchthon was a scholarly type, 
disciplined, straight-laced and skinny. You can imagine him, can't you? And he study all day, messing over texts and writing theology to back up Luther's ministry and his goals. And he had very little appetite, so he didn't look very fat at all. He looked like a Belson victim. And uh, when Luther watched his progress in this way and his cool uprightness, Luther said to him, For goodness sake, Philip, why don't you go out and sin a little? God deserves to have something to forgive you for. (laughs) Well, it's irony, but it's good fun irony. Some of us need that kind of exhortation to, to, to live and to be real and be energetic and passionate. Captives. Exile is a place of bondage, or bondage, as they say in the Brethren churches. <laughs> Keeping your hair in a bun. There's no buns here today, is there? No, good. Glad that ear is gone, aren't you girls? And feeling, therefore, a long way from home under alien powers, rising every morning to see the same scenery, the same landscape, the same miserable faces every Sunday. Because I'm not talking about you, but just in case. And the same miserable routine that nobody's really enjoying. But what happened for the church in the 60s onwards is that somebody told us about the Holy Spirit. And whole generations of believers who'd grown up knowing little or nothing about the Holy Spirit, except he's named as part of the Trinity. But what the heck does he do? We don't know. The Holy Spirit, or Holy Ghost, as we called him, which is a bit spooky, isn't it? Who wants to be friendly with a ghost? But it's from the German Geist, and it translates into English as spirit. The Holy Spirit is as much a person as the Father is, and as Jesus is. He's a real, personal entity in the Trinity of God. And he's the greatest friend we have alongside of Jesus, He's called the comforter, the paraclete, the one who is called alongside us to fortify us like a lawyer in court or an aide when you're in a crisis. The Holy Spirit is one of the greatest agencies of God to lift our lives and empower our lives and make them significant for God. So, there were very little experiences of the Spirit in many of our churches in the past. And we often called him an it. The spirit is an it. No, he's not an it. Anymore, the you are not an it. You are a person with feelings and sensitivity and intelligence and observation and where you can process things. The Holy Spirit is that multiplied by infinity. He knows all that's going on in our lives. He wants to aid us if only we'd welcome him and receive him well. And so when the Spirit of God began to move in the churches in renewal and became nicknamed the charismatic movement because the Greek word charismata began to feature again, which means spiritual gifts that listed in 1 Corinthians 12 and other passages in the New Testament. One of the most controversial, of course, was tongues. And that was deemed in my church as of the devil. Of the devil. That comes close to blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They called it gibberish. People shrieking out and falling over, for example. All that jollity and false uh, uh, irreverence, they would say. But you know, they didn't understand 
because they'd never experienced much of what the Holy Spirit can do to make us not less human, but more human. I found where every place where the clean operation of the Spirit is moved, He releases us to become who God intended us to be. And He heals emotional damage and strongholds in our lives and rids us of them. If you're an ugly critic or a congenital liar or someone who is full of mean-spiritedness or lacks optimism in any way, shape, or form, the Holy Spirit will start dealing with all of those things. And He'll bring you back to something like Christ's likeness, filled with hope and joy and lavish love for others. But sadly, they had no idea that He was the answer to their plight and their disillusionment and troubles as individuals and churches were chronic because they were scared of all that God has given to give us life in all of its fullness by His Spirit. But when that happened to people, as it happened to me eventually, we sobbed with joy. And these were not tears of boredom anymore. You felt God's love and you sang the old hymns, but you sang them differently. And can it be that I and the one that came to my soul's soul many, very often was choruses like, Jesus, we enthrone you, or Lord, I lift your name on high. And as these choruses came as a new hymnology, songs of fellowship was compiled, and we felt we'd never worshipped in our life before, because the Spirit was now on us to delight and joy in Jesus Christ. Church became the place to be. Teens loved it. Children loved it. And if you know if your teens are enjoying it, God's up to something. You couldn't wait to meet again in Sundays, on ho- in your homes, barbecues in the summer, all-night prayer meetings. What? All-night prayer meetings? Yes! Early morning prayer meetings. We did early morning prayer meetings for nearly five years. Every day of the week, and then we brought it down to three days of the week. And people kept coming. We were praying for a renewal. More, more Lord, more Lord, and more came. The preaching comes alive with relevance and power. Stories of healings and deliverance from demons escalated as we discovered what the enemy was secretly doing in people's lives that we weren't even aware of. We had no gifts of discernment of those horrible manifestations and the crippling burdens laid on people's lives of accusation or illness or depression, or feelings of of, uh, lack of worth, a non-entity. This is all the work of dark powers. They're called the accuser of the brethren because they follow the master, Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren. And so we remember how God changed things. It says here in verses 2 to 3, We were like men who dreamed, and our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. And then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. This is literally fulfilled in the mid-20th century. The move of the Holy Spirit in wave upon wave went to all the nations, including the coldest areas of Europe, like Norway and Sweden and Scandinavia. It's cold in Lutheranism with very little joy left to be seen. It's like a perpetual bargain or the killing in the churches. 
Scandinavian drama has become very popular, but it's very bleak. And that's what churches have been like. The Christian life, then, is more than a message or a formula. It's meant to be a sphere of power, power to change the world. And this means bigger changes and bigger blessings that still lie ahead for us all, even this very day. Changes in the caliber and abilities of our leaders, including the number who are called to that role, of the ministry that we do, which is touched and tinged all the time with the glow of God's Holy Spirit, of relationships that are authentic and real. And you won't find them in most clubs or pubs. If you've seen what the Holy Spirit can do, even non-Christians think, wow. Similarly, our character changes. Church life becomes compelling like a magnet. It draws people. And mission is all going to change because there are many people who need what we have once this happens again and again for us. We catch hints here of what God's after. Joy relived. We need mental changes for this to happen. It says here, we were like men who dreamed. I wonder, do you dream? There have been significant in my lives when I've seriously dreamed, because what I've been living is a nightmare. And I want to dream God's dreams for the people around me and the corporate sense of the church. And you know, when God gives young men dreams and old men dreams, it's because he wants to see those dreams become reality. And he'll give us the wisdom to know how to do it. New, daring, and exciting thoughts come into your mind for your family, for your children, for your workplace, for your church. Some through preaching, others through prophecy or visions that God gives us. Insightful teaching and striking testimony begins to be on fire again. And all of our minds are changed by renewed thinking that comes from God about Jesus, our Savior, who becomes center stage in our passion and zeal, and also about the Holy Spirit and His supernatural equipping for every one of His saints. We begin to manage our money differently than we used to. And our marriages start to sing, which they once did, but they've been rather silent of that kind of joy for quite a while. We can also expect that there'll be laughter within us and miracles on a regular basis. Even music chains, changes because new wine needs new wine skins. And we've known then these emotional changes where it says here, our mouths were filled with laughter. Laughter was once largely unknown in some uptight uh, churches in our land. It was considered irreverent to laugh in church. People called that move of the Spirit in the mid-90s, which was nicknamed the Toronto Blessing because it seems to have started in the city of Toronto and then spread to America through people who carried it to different churches, and it spread like wildfire and then came over to the UK. The movement I was part of, New Frontiers, which was then um, hundreds of churches, mostly in the south of England, but not exclusively. It spread like wildfire in our churches. It lasted for five years in my church in Winchester. And it's a, something I look back on and say, joy relived. Let's have some more of that, Lord. It was amazing. And what it did, of course, 
was invite criticism. It was dubbed the laughing spirit by its critics. And some of it, some people attributed it to the devil. And they called us um, laughing hyenas. Well, I, I was never impressed with that kind of analysis of a genuine move of God in our midst. And thank God, it did wonderful things for the people I was acquainted with in terms of their advance in the gospel and in mission and personal self-sacrifice to take great risks to see others converted for Christ at home and overseas. Why, even God laughs. In Psalm 2, it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. And do you know what he laughs at? Anyone who tries to stop him. All of his enemies are ridiculous in God's sight. You can't harm God. You can harm his people, but you can't harm God. And so, they were telling us this is no laughing matter. If God laughs at the evils that he knows he can deal with with the click of his fingers, we should laugh. We should laugh in the security that we have that is borrowed from him. The joy of knowing God is in control and God is able to do anything where his people are ready to cooperate with him and obey what he says. Karl Rana said, God laughs the laugh of the carefree, the confident, and the not easily threatened. It's in Psalm 2. He's not easily threatened. Do you think God's biting his nails in heaven right now? What am I going to do? Look what's happening in Europe right now. And Moscow and Crimea. I don't know what to do. Jesus, have you any ideas? God knows exactly what he's up to. He's totally in control of everything. He laughs at the puny, ant-like behavior of foolish men and women. He can stop it any time he wants. He can redirect it any time he wants. And he will. And so, no wonder we can have seasons when joyful song breaks out again. Eugene Peterson puts it like this, Joy is not so much feeling good about yourself, but feeling good about God. It's not a fit of the nervous giggles because we are insecure, but a heartfelt laugh because we are very secure. I feel very secure in God. Danger, criticism, hostility, mean-spirited people. We meet them all the time, but we have met God, and that makes all the difference. He's bigger than anything we face, and he can change anything he wants. So that's why we go through changes in our public reputation. Do you want a better public reputation? I do for the church I pastor at Westminster, and I want it for the church general, and I want it for you. It says, then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Many churches, once well nigh invisible and unknown to a watching world, have allowed the Holy Spirit to raise them to high profile and influence. Do it again, Lord. Do it again in our land. Even the media notice what's happening when a move of the Spirit comes. Lots of people come to see and then experience God all over again. Over 2.5 million British people have attended the Alpha Course in this country in the last 20 or so years. Thank God for Charles, my friend, vicar friend who wrote the original Alpha Course for HTB, 
and for Nicky Gumbel, who expanded it and exported it all over the world. Thank God. But I'm only talking about the UK. 2.5 million plus have attended Alpha Course in that period of time. No wonder, because God's there. And we worship with enthusiasm and experience genuine love, good preaching, the truth in its power to penetrate our souls and see lives changed and healings very often accompanying what's being said and done. So this is the number one attraction, Jesus himself, fully alive in his church. So that not only joys to be relived, I conclude more shortly with this. I want to exhort you to pursue joys reclaimed. We've had a nostalgic view for the past, and we've probably all experienced something or other of what I've been trying to describe. Well, how about reclaiming it? That's the important thing, isn't it? So in verse 4 to 6, it says that restore our fortunes. That's a prayer, low Lord, like streams in the Negev. 